I am blessed to regularly talk with uh, young adults who do not believe in Jesus. Um, <clears throat> I get to talk to these different groups, and, and sadly, they don't, they don't know much Scripture at all. Quite tragically, they rarely even know the bare minimum they ought to know of Scripture just to understand Western literature. Uh, it's really fairly heartbreaking. But there is one verse, there is one verse that every group always knows. I'm telling you, they always know this verse. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. It usually plays out something like this. Uh, a guy comes in, hey, you're blocking the doorway to my class. I need to get in there. Um, it's what I need to do. It's not wrong for me because I'm a door blocker. The guy answers, oh, then uh, I guess that's okay. I can't judge what's right for anyone else. Right? You get it? This absurdity works itself out in many permutations. It's always based on this understanding of Matthew 7.1. Jesus' statement, don't judge so you won't be judged. Here's the modern interpretation. Judgment is any appraisal of right and wrong that disagrees with a person's own definition of right and wrong. Okay? How many of you hear that on a fairly regular basis? Or, let me ask this, you were taught that in school or in your home. Raise your hand if you hear that or you were taught that. Okay, almost all of us, which is really, really sad, because not only is that a complete misrepresentation of what Jesus said, it is a life-destroying, toxic pile of refuse. How do I really feel? Um, that cannot be what Jesus meant by judging. Because if it were, his statement a few seconds later makes absolutely no sense. Just a few seconds later, he says this, uh, Matthew 7, 6, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. There, there's obviously an absolute value inherent in this paragraph, right? There are dogs and pigs. It doesn't matter if they identify as something different. They are still unclean, right? So judge not cannot mean the elimination of absolute value. There must be absolute truth, not individual truth. Well, if that's not what judge not means, then what does it mean? Let's start by defining some terms. Begin with the first term you see there in your notes. You've got a worship guide. When you came and open that up, look on the left-hand side, you'll see the word judgment. The base Greek word that we use for judge here is krino. Krino is a term of decision and condemnation. Krino assesses fault and condemns the person who is to blame. And the first thing we need to know about Crino is that judgment is God's business. Crino, on the count of three, you get to say that. It's your first fancy word for today, boys and girls. Count of three, Crino. One, two, three. Crino is God's business. That's why the Old Testament words that are parallel to this Greek word Crino, they describe actions that are reserved for God. Yahweh alone can judge the hearts of people. For example, uh, Micah chapter 4 verse 3 describes what God is going to do during Messiah's kingdom that is going to come. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Um, <clears throat> the Greek translation of the Old Testament, judge right there is krino. God the Messiah knows who is wrong and he correctly condemns those who are to blame. But that is never a human task. Never. And what's true in the Old Testament comes wholesale into the New Testament as well. Look uh, Peter's statement, Acts chapter 10, verse 42. He, Peter says, Messiah Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living 
and the dead. Now here's what's particularly amazing here. Peter in Acts chapter 10 is addressing Gentiles. Nasty, smarmy Gentiles whom Peter from his boyhood has been trained to judge. And yet he recognizes the Old Testament truth that is lived out in Jesus and he says judgment is God's place. It's not mine. Specifically, What he's saying is Gentiles are going to be converted to faith in the Messiah by reference to divine judgment. They will never be converted by the human kind. One more example. Paul's brilliant summary of all theology, the book of Romans, starts off with a reminder that we are all lost. We are all sinful. We are all unworthy of God's holiness. Look what he says, Romans chapter 1. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Isn't it awesome how God sneaks up on us there in chapter 2, verse 1? Isn't that amazing? We're, we're all tracking, listening to him, going, yeah, boy, those other humans, they are horrible. They are just stinky, I tell you. And then he says, you, therefore, better not judge. God is the only right, righteous, and holy judge, not you. James also hammers this idea home. Look at his pithy summary, James 4, 12. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Judgment is God's business. It is not our business. Now, read verse 2, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Do not judge, so you won't be judged, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, this is an Old Testament concept very familiar to Jesus' disciples. Uh, Just one example, read with me, Proverbs 22, verses 8 and 9. You get the underlined text. The one who sows injustice will reap disaster, and the rod of his fury will be destroyed. A generous person will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor, right? What's interesting is the Old Testament texts sometimes show this retribution. You see, this is retribution theology. They sometimes show this as a divine issue, and other times it will be a horizontal interhuman issue. Does that make sense? Sometimes the disaster or the blessing that that you deserve comes as a direct response from God. But other times the judgment that we mete out gets thrown back to us through a human agency. Now, it's always the sovereign Lord who's behind it all, but it's a more natural human mimicry where where the people to whom we sowed judgment bring it back on our heads. It it works out something like this clip from the TV show, The Office. It's kind of blurry. Question, what kind of bear is best? That's a ridiculous question. False, black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact, 
Bears eat beets. Oh. Bears, beets, Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not. What is going on? What are you doing? Last week, I was in a drugstore and I saw these glasses, uh, $4. And it only cost me $7 to recreate the rest of the ensemble, and that's a grand total of $11. You know what? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! <clears throat> that is funny, but what, what's the problem? There's an inherent problem with this office-type human-on-human judgment. Dwight has it coming, but can you see the weakness? Jim, Jim can easily end up judging Dwight. In other words, <clears throat> Jim can become the very thing he hates. Judgment is symmetrical among humans. It's how we're wired, but we must never forget that Crino is God's arena. Outside of some government agency set up specifically by God to judge humans, it is not our place to do this, to practice judgment. And it's a major problem with many people in America today. We think God needs us to play Holy Spirit. We think he needs us to comment on every wrong, to excoriate all those who deserve judgment. Instead, Jesus' verbiage makes it clear we should do what is right and then trust God to set all straight. I don't think anyone I've ever read put it as well as astronaut Christopher Hadfield when he said, you only get so many golden opportunities to keep your mouth shut and you should take advantage of every single one. Now let's read verses three through four. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye. Look, there is a log in your eye. Judgment flourishes under self-blindness. Jesus' image here is so famous that we, we almost don't understand it because we're so used to it. Try, please try to look at it with fresh eyes. It is almost certain the disciples burst out laughing here. I mean, this is a funny, funny image. Just picture a dude who is stumbling around with a tree on his face talking to other people about how he'll help them get the sawdust off of their face. That is hilarious, right? A number of years ago, I, I commissioned a, uh, a famous local artist, a friend of mine, T. Scott Stromberg, to do a painting uh, as I was teaching this passage. And, uh, and so T. Scott did this painting. Uh, he called it Mountaintop Experience, and it's at the moment that Jesus says the, the log illustration. And this guy, he's laughing. You see, that guy's laughing. This one is absolutely pale because this is so non-pharisaical. This is so radical, and this guy's mind is just blown. I mean, he just, he's got one eye going the wrong direction. He's really just totally messed up. This is mind-blowing stuff. That's what happens when you do satire, and you do it well. And verses 3 and 4 are not only one of the earliest examples of satire in world literature, it's one of the best. Like all exaggerated satire, the point is to get people to think. Jesus says, find freedom from judgmentalism. Do so by thinking about yourself and what you are really doing to that other person as you're beating him with your log, pretending that you're trying to help. Aretha Franklin, who was schooled in the Bible at church, she was, she was brought up in the Bible. She may have had this passage in mind when she wrote her famous song, wonderful song, Think. She said, you better think. Think about what you're trying to do to me. Think. Let your mind go. Let yourself be free. Oh, freedom, freedom. But thinking is hard, even if it does bring the freedom to really see. Thinking is especially difficult. Please listen very carefully. Thinking is especially difficult when, like so many of you people, 
one has experienced success and power. When, when a person has legitimately achieved, as so many of you have, legitimately achieved in life, it becomes very hard for him or her to notice the log in his or her own eye. We become self-blind, and that leads to judgmentalism. Here's proof. Jerry Unseen wrote a very convincing uh, column titled, uh, Power Causes Brain Damage. We went through it in one of our elders' meetings, found it very useful. I couldn't fit it all, but I put some excerpts in your notes. Jerry says this, The historian Henry Adams was metaphorical, not medical, when he described power as a sort of tumor that ends up by killing the victim's sympathies. But that's not far from where Dr. Keltner, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, ended up after years of lab and field experiments. Subjects under the influence of power, he found in studies spanning two decades, acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain injury becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially, less adept at seeing things from other people's point of view. Powerful people stop simulating the experiences of others, Keltner says, which leads to what he calls an empathy deficit. Look at this part. Lord David Owen, who's a British neurologist turned parliamentarian, defined it as hubris syndrome in a 2009 article published in Brain with his co-author Jonathan Davidson. It is a disorder of the possession of power, particularly a power which has been associated with overwhelming success, held for a period of years, and with minimal constraint on the leader, close quote. Jesus says, stop it with the hubris already. You have nothing of which to be proud. You are a poor in spirit sinner saved by God's grace. Think, think about your own log-sized sins and start understanding your brother instead of judging him. Here's how the Apostle Paul developed the idea. Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Aren't you glad that all of us are always like verse 32? Aren't you thrilled that verse 31 never applies to any of us, right? Then again, maybe not. Ask yourself this. Do any of these statements apply to me? I'm just going to read some statements. Do any of these apply to me? I think less of someone who drinks alcohol. Not drunkenness, that's a biblical issue, but just drinking any alcohol partaking at all. I think less of them. Or I think less of somebody who's a teetotaler. How about this one? I cannot imagine how any Christian could vote for the current U.S. president. I cannot fathom how anyone with biblical morals could vote Democrat. How about this? Though I may plaster on a fake smile, I actually look down on anyone who doesn't, and you can fill in the blank here, breastfeed, doesn't celebrate my gluten-free lifestyle, immunize, reject immunization, play sports, enjoy board games, use cloth diapers, help fund my adoption desires, love my dog, or love my cats. Hmm. I can't stand blank type of worship music. Now, you can insert your pet peeve, or you can select from these. Hymns, praise songs, repetitive choruses, soft songs, loud songs, long songs, short songs, campy 19th century songs, campy 1990 music, choir, lead, choir free, acapella, instrumental, or chants. When someone shares their love of that horrid excuse for worship music, I am astonished. I struggle with condemnation toward any Christian who doesn't speak in tongues, or who does speak in tongues who doesn't raise hands in worship 
or who doesn't read the Bible every morning. And I could go on and on, but surely you get the point. The point is that nearly every person in here, in fact, I would say probably every person in here was smitten by at least one of those comments. We are judgmental. Now, there might be some speck of sin in an attitude or action that we abhor, but our judgmentalism is a comparative tree trunk. I was talking about this with Martin McDonald of our pulpit team, and we came up with these reasons why we find that we slide into self-blindness, why we take on God's role of crino instead of leaving it up to him. This is what we came up with. Uh, crino and human. Human crino, inappropriate crino, can be caused by fear. That, that's often part of it. It can be caused by prejudices, especially prejudices from bad experience. I had a bad experience. Or from upbringing. Stereotypes. Stereotypes will especially lead to crino when somebody is in a hurry. Uh, Self-righteousness. The sophomoric idea that if I put somebody else down, that elevates myself. It's absurd. Feelings of superiority. And increasingly in our day and age, class or tribal identification. However true all those factors may be, though, there is one issue that I feel very certain lies at the heart of all judgmentalism. You ready? We like it. We like it, Mikey. We enjoy, frankly enjoy, taking God's place. We crino because we like it. What has been the human problem ever since Genesis 3, ever since the garden? It has been the desire to be like God, right? Take his place. It's futile and absurd, and we must stop it. How? By trading our judgment for discernment. Read verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6. Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Remember, we must begin by understanding the terms. When Jesus says, see clearly here in Matthew, Matthew records the Greek term diablepo. Diablepo, it's a discerning term. It carries the idea of objectivity and understanding. Blepo is the key word. It's the root word. You get to say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Blepo. One, two, three. Blepo. Very good. Uh, look at Dr. Vine's comment. I put this on the right side of your notes. Look to the right side of your notes. Blepo especially stresses the thought of the person who sees this is amazing. Okay, now, now Jesus, having used crino for judgment, making it clear that judgment is God's business, he now uses blepo to illustrate this. The opposite of judgmentalism is not blindness. It's discernment. The opposite of judgment is not, is not no values. It is discernment. We've got to think. That's what blepo means. We discern. Rather than judge, we exercise discernment. And verse 5 tells us discernment begins with humility. Look at that. Admit you are a hypocrite and get the help you need first. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? You end up living out exactly what we read earlier that Paul recounted in Romans 1.31. Remember Romans 1.31, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Un. And it all starts with undiscerning. I must understand that if I can't be humble, I will never be discerning. I must start right here by thinking and humbly admitting the truth about myself. And this is humbling. We covered this a few days ago. I want to remind us what a shocking term it is when Jesus uses the word hypocrite. Uh, the first word in verse 5 in Greek is hypocrites. 
came into English as hypocrite. Now, Hippocrates was an actor on a Greek stage, right? Over time, it came to be associated with anybody who was performing for humans and not God. Okay, this is a really racy term for Jesus to use. Look, he speaks all this in Galilee, right? Well, Galilee was very Hellenized. That means there were lots of Greco-Roman theaters there, and they were quite often packed out. But here's the deal. Godly people never went to the theater. Never went to the theater. I don't know if you know this or not, but for for many, many centuries, it was considered a, a horrible thing to go to the theater because actors were considered to be dangerous and debauched. It's weird how things change, but, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just picking on my son. Um, calling someone a Hippocrates is rather like calling somebody today a sleazebag, okay? It, it is astonishing. Jesus used a shocking word on purpose because God knows it is shocking and it is humbling for us to recognize our own Hippocrates. And seeing myself clearly, not to mention seeing others clearly, requires humility. Remember what humility is. Humility is thinking correctly of self while thinking primarily of others. Humility, thinking correctly of self while thinking primarily of others. And humility allows a Christian to discern, even, even when the pressure is very high. But because we're humble, we don't worry about whether people applaud or not. We're insulated from the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age. We're able to discern without judging. For example, I want to introduce you to a wonderful guy, Dr. Jerry P. Kula. This poor brother of ours has been under immense pressure the last couple of weeks. Um, Dr. Kula is the general coordinator of African churches for the United Methodist denomination. And last week, his denomination faced a huge vote about, um, about ordaining people who want to practice certain sexual sins and conducting same-sex marriages. I can only imagine the weight that Jerry felt as he came from Africa all the way to St. Louis and all the forces of progress assailed him. Oh my goodness, the man was truly reviled. But his wonderful humility allowed him to discern I want to read to you part of his keynote speech. I couldn't fit it all in your notes. Um, here's how it goes. He, he addressed the assembly this way. By the way, the stuff that's in uh, italics is from an internal Methodist document. All persons are individuals of sacred worth, created in the image of God. All God's people said? All persons need the ministry of the church. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. While we commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons, we do not condone the practice of homosexuality considered incompatible with the sexual ethics of Scripture. We do not celebrate same-sex marriages or ordain for ministry people who self-avow as practicing homosexuals. Dr. Kula goes on. However, we extend grace to all people because we know that we are sinners in need of God's redeeming. We know how critical and life-changing God's grace has been in our own lives. We warmly welcome all people into our churches. We long to be in fellowship with them, to pray with them, to weep with them, and to experience the joy of transformation with them. Close quote. Isn't that well said? His humility, you see the humility, it allowed him to be discerning when so many other people were being judgmental. That is exactly what Jesus wants. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop at humility. Discernment also engages with the brethren. We do address the speck. Do you see that in verse 5? The answer to judgmentalism is not turning a blind eye to sin. It is the opposite. It's helping. Have you ever had something in your eye? Raise your hand if you've ever had something in your eye. Keep your hand up if you wanted it to stay in there. All right. It hurts. You don't want that thing to stay in there. My, my dad did this one time. 
He came back from golfing on a very, very windy day, and his eye was killing him. Something had blown in there, and it was hurting fiercely, but the pansy wouldn't let anybody look at it. No, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It just it hurts, and I don't want anybody to touch it. It'll, just, it'll flush out. It'll be fine. It wasn't fine. Two days later, he woke up in the morning. His eye was so completely bloodshot and weeping that even my dad, who never went to the doctor, went to the doctor. The doctor, the family doctor, sent him to an ophthalmologist immediately. You know what the ophthalmologist found? There was a grass seed that had blown in his eye and gotten around the side of his orbital socket, and it was germinating in his eye! Ah! It was growing in the vitreous fluid of his eye! People need help with the junk in our eyes. Judging people cannot provide that help, but discerning people can. That's why it's so important that we engage with the brethren. And it is brethren. Look, look at verse 5. Jesus limits this to members of the household of faith. Brother is a very important term in verse 5. Most help from discernment comes from Christian to Christian. It is very rare. It happens on occasion. But it's very rare that a worldling, somebody who doesn't trust Jesus, is going to ask for help with removal of sin. Lost people instead are usually very adamant about their rejection of the, the whole idea of sin. They would rather lose their eye to a germinating seed than ask a Christian to point out problems. Sadly, they would rather wallow in filth than be clean if cleanness means trusting God. If you Christians think about this, if you'll just remember your own days before you came to Christ, you'll understand why the non-Christian hates discernment about sin. In fact, we'll falsely call discernment judgment. It's because people don't want to recognize absolutes believing, and this is hilarious, but we do. We, they believe that if they can continue in relativism and there's no such thing as right and wrong, then they can continue to sin without any consequences and without feeling bad about it. <laughs> Good luck with that. More on that in a moment. First, suppose somebody, Christian or not, suppose somebody does seek help. Suppose you or I go up and we need help. We've got a, we've got a sinful speck in our lives. What kind of person do you want to provide the help for you? Let me give you three options. Okay, just think physically. You've got a seed germinating in your eye. Which of these three people would you like performing the operation? Okay, there's something in your eye. What do you want? Do you want help from somebody who has perfect vision? Or, door number two, would you like help from somebody who is legally blind, but they are certain that they can fix it? Okay? Or, third option, help from somebody who says, don't worry about it. It's imaginary. It'll go in. It's going to flush out on itself. Which... Which one do you want? One, two, or three? Okay. Why? Blepo. You want somebody who has discernment. They can really see. You know, the blind person, that represents judgment. That's somebody trying to be crino. They're trying to say that they can see what only God can see. That they can do what only God can do. That third option, by the way, the pretender, it's just hinted at in Jesus' speech here. It's developed further in other passages. These pretenders, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but please remember this. Pretenders who declare there are no absolutes, they always turn out to be the most judgmental of all. Always. Because if you're determined to pretend there's nothing wrong, if you're determined to pretend there's no such thing as sin, then you must silence anybody who says otherwise because you live in terror that your pretense will be exposed. Discernment, clear vision, that can be an incredible blessing to, to everybody around you. Judgment is very unhelpful because it's blind and pretense, declaring there's nothing wrong. Well, that's just willful blindness. It always leads to the worst kind of judgmentalism. All this prompted our African brother to continue his speech this way. Look what Dr. Cullis said. 
Friends, please hear me. We Africans are not afraid of our sisters and brothers who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, or queer. We love them, and we hope the best for them. But we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. And then please hear me when I say as graciously as I can, we Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Let me assure you, we Africans, whether we have liked it or not, have had to engage in this debate for many years now. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. We stand with our Filipino friends. We stand with our sisters and brothers in Europe and Russia. And yes, we stand with our allies in America. We stand with farmers in Zambia, trek workers in Nairobi, Sunday school teachers in Nigeria, biblical scholars in Liberia, pastors in the Congo, United Methodist women in Cote d'Ivoire, and thousands of others United Methodists all across Africa who have heard no compelling reasons for changing our sexual ethics, our teaching on marriage, and our ordination standards, close quote. Now, do you see the widespread engagement with the brethren there? That's what discernment does. Discernment actually broadens horizons. Judgment doesn't do that. Judgment's always defining itself by with whom one disagrees. Verse 6 has one last gem about discernment. It recognizes when it's time to move on. Verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before swine or pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What is holy to dogs, pearls before swine, what does that mean? Well, it makes a great title for an awesome comic strip. And that's true, but that's not all Jesus had in mind. He was discussing discernment, blepo, seeing clearly. The reality is there are things in life which are set aside for God. They are holy. Those holy things should not be treated flippantly. Anybody here have a dog? Anybody have a dog? Anybody got a pig? Okay, no, all right, one. Oh, good, okay. Um, it's interesting Jesus chooses dogs and pigs. Now, they're both unclean by Hebrew standards, but he could have chosen a lot of other things. There's one trait that they seem to share in common. Pigs and dogs will eat just about anything edible. Now, they're not quite like goats. They don't eat tin cans, but they will eat anything else. My dog will. My, my dog will eat anything. He is an absolute fiend for lettuce. When I'm having my typical salad for dinner, he hears the lettuce being broken. And he, comes, <laughs> he comes running, wanting lettuce. And don't even get him started on marshmallows. Holy cow, he'll eat anything, all right? But here's the odd part of the text. Look, Jesus says these hungry hounds and hogs don't eat the holy things. What? Instead, they stomp on it, and then they turn and eat you. Now, the only explanation that makes that fit, makes sense, is that the dogs and pigs, again, unclean in the Hebrew mind, they represent the rejection of any idea of right and wrong. People who reject any idea of right and wrong will turn on you like Bilbo Baggins seeing his old ring. When you try to share God's truth with people who are committed to warping it or rejecting it, they will reject that truth. They stomp on it. They will not eat it. They won't take that truth in. In fact, the only thing they want to eat is you. That doesn't mean that Jesus' followers quit loving and praying. We always love and pray. But we don't continue to share when people are committed to rejecting truth. We move on. Listen, self-induced martyrdom is not acceptable to the Lord. That's why Jesus later tells his people this, Matthew chapter 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. I assure you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Don't stay there and judge. 
That's God's business. Crino. But don't keep casting pearls before swine either. Show blepo, show discernment. Discern when it's time to move on and leave people in God's hands. Again, Dr. Kula is, this man is just excellent at discernment. I want you to hear the last portion of his speech. He says, we are grounded in God's word and the gracious and clear teachings of our church. On that we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will take the road that leads to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for transformation of the world. I hope and pray for your sake you will walk down that road with us. We would warmly welcome you as our traveling companions. But if you choose another road, we Africans cannot go with you. Isn't that great? You're welcome to join us. Come, there is no human judgment here. But if you reject discernment based on God's truth, well, then we, we've got to dust our sandals and move on. Speaking of move on, here's his very last section. Here's how he wraps up. Unfortunately, some United Methodists in the U.S. have the very faulty assumption that all Africans are concerned about is U.S. financial support. Well, I'm sure, being sinners like all of you, some Africans are fixated on money. <laughs> but with all due respect, a fixation on money seems more of an American problem than an African one. We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. I'm not so sure you do. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars, then they simply do not know us. We will persevere in the race before us. We will remain steadfast and faithful. Come walk with us. Isn't that awesome? Give him a hand. Would you like to be more like Dr. Kula? Able to discern without judging, able to speak truth, hard truth in love, then commit to the things Jesus has taught us in this passage. I think I can fairly summarize it all in four verbs. I didn't have room to put these in your notes. You can write them in. Four verbs, I think, summarize this passage. Ask, think, see, and listen. Ask, think, see, and listen. Ask, am I humble before God and before Scripture? Am I? If the source of my morality on any issue is anything other than God's revealed Scripture, I cannot be discerning. I can't. I will end up being judgmental. Think, in what ways am I taking God's place? Where am I pushy, impatient, full of hubris? I'm going to make this thing right. See, blepo, see. Where am I blind to my own sin in this area? Given the opportunity, where would clear-sighted people tell me of, of specks in my eyes? Listen, listen, if I hear barking and oinking, it's time to move on, okay? It's simple. Let's close with a time of prayer. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. This is hard stuff, and yet, and yet it's really very simple. They need and I need to ask, think and see and listen. We are very quick to grab your judgment gavel and make it our own, and it's absurd, and we are sorry. And then we're very quick to call for the cultural lie that the opposite of that is just to have no absolutes. That's absurd. It's also a lie. It doesn't even hold together philosophically. Help us to blepo instead. Let us be discerning people. By the way, speaking of discern, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with me that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that they would discern right now. 
that you want and we want them to come walk with us. Friend, listen, you, you are a sinner. You are. It's a fact. Just as I am. But you can be a sinner who is saved by grace. I'm a beggar just like you, but I know where there's bread. The bread of life, Jesus. You see, you and I deserve eternal judgment. We do. But God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, who is fully God and fully human so that that judgment could fall on him. And he died on a Roman cross to pay for your sin. And then he rose from the dead so that those of us who trust in him could follow him in everlasting life. And that's what's available to you. Believe on Jesus. Trust him right now as Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Let me, let me rejoice with you. Good. Good. Father, I pray for these who are believers in Christ, old and new. And I beg you, in a world in which this seems very difficult, we would stop making excuses and we would start seeing blepo. We would be discerning. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.